Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. So welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. Guys, in early May 2020, we had an explosion of news stories related to the Asian giant horn. And if you've been watching the news around that time, if you're a beekeeper, you've probably been past countless story after countless story about this hornet that the press affectionately calls the murder hornet. And that, of course, sounded the alarm all over the country uh, about what this thing is capable of doing to honeybees. So as a result, Amy and I and the University of Florida Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory decided we wanted to do a very special podcast directly uh, focusing on this issue so that we can inform beekeepers around the U.S. and around the world about some of the things that we're facing here in the U.S., some truths and myths about the Asian giant hornet, and what we can do moving forward as uh, its, its potential to spread continues. And in order to do that, we have brought in as an interviewee, the man himself, Chris Looney, who's the entomologist for the Washington State Department of Agriculture. He's been working very closely with the Asian giant hornet, and he's here to answer questions that Amy and I have about this issue. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you must be in, in huge demand these days, given the amount of press this particular wasp has received. That's nice to be with you all. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I'm just, you know, before we get into this, Hornet, I want to introduce our listeners to, to who you are. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work, and what your job normally is when, when the Asian giant Hornet is not something that's preoccupying you. Sure. So I'm one of a, a five or six entomologists that work for the Washington State Department of Agriculture based in Olympia, Washington. Uh, we also have an office in Yakima, Washington. Um, my particular role is to be sort of the general entomologist for our agency. I don't specialize in some of the other programs that we have, like Asian, Asian uh, or just gypsy moth control or the Japanese beetle eradication or any of that. I, I am the provide taxonomic services to the other other programs and sort of general natural history services in support of these other programs. So Asian giant hornet is definitely not my specialty. It's not anybody's specialty here yet. Um, it fell into our laps last year. And as part of my general duties, I've had to try and bone up on it and help us navigate how we're going to respond to this by, by figuring out what's known and what's not known about this crazy species. Chris, you mentioned something very funny because um, I forget when the news first came across my desk, but it was sometime in late 2019. And I had forwarded that article to Amy and some other members of the lab at the time. I said, Hey guys, this yeah, is, we were ready. Of, yeah. I was like, this is going to be a big deal. People are going to you know, be concerned about it. And all of a sudden it was just a hushed quiet. Silence. There was no, nothing, <laughs> nothing for four, five, or six months. I, again, I forget when it initially came across my desk. I think it was November or so of 2019. But here we are in May. Some reporter got a hold of it, and now it has exploded, and it has become as significant a story in the U.S. in many ways as COVID-19 has, at least for the first week or two that this, this news is broken. Oh, formally. man. So, Have you guys so I, seen the memes? Have you seen the, the COVID and murder hornet memes that are out there? 
They're kind of funny. Yeah, I yeah. think they're actually great. You're right. <laughs> been a lot of outrage from entomologists in this murder hornet name, but I have to say it would nowhere near be as funny if we had all just stuck with Asian giant hornet. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I want to set the stage, uh, Chris, a little bit though, before Amy kind of jumps in and asks you sp- some specific questions. So, you know, I'm in Europe quite a bit, and, and the Europeans already have a hornet from Asia that is over there causing problems for some of their bee colonies in certain countries scattered around Europe. And when I go to a lot of their beekeeper meetings, they're always talking about the Asian hornet. So, so my question to you is, is as kind of we kick this off, is the Asian giant hornet, the, the hornet that we have in the U.S., and the Asian hornet, the hornet that they talk about in Europe all the time, are they the same species? And if not, what are we dealing with specifically? They are absolutely different species, and it's unfortunate that we have such similar-sounding common names in English for them. Um, The Asian giant hornet, the one we're concerned about in Washington, is the species Vespa mandarinia. It's it's the largest of the true hornets. Those are the 22 social wasps in the genus Vespa. All of them are Palearctic originally. Uh, And what they're dealing with in Europe is uh, Vespa velatina, um, or maybe velatina. My, My fake Latin's really bad. Uh, and that's, uh, that's another honeybee predator, but it's not quite as large and, um, and it's native more to s- southern Asia. I, I think this is the same species that's also invading Korea and, and creating problems there. Yeah. And it's funny you mention all of that because w- w- when I was hearing the story about the Asian giant hornet back in, in fall of 2019, I kept going, wait a minute, is this the hornet that's supposed to be in Europe? Because if it is, you know, the European bee scientists and beekeepers have been kind of really focusing on this for some time. And then I got a lot of confusion between the species. And I know that just like like what you said, beekeepers are trying their best to figure out ways to deal with it. But then it became apparent to me that this isn't the same hornet. hornet. There's in fact two of them, as you mentioned. And I think the one that you're looking at and having to deal with in Washington is unique because it's so big. You just mentioned it's the largest Mm -hmm. of the true hornet species. So that's that's why it gets its kind of intimidating name and a lot of press potentially. Yeah, indeed. It also has that, that unique, as far as I know, unique or pretty close to unique behavior of, of these coordinated mass attacks on other social hymenoptera, including honeybees late mm-hmm. in the colony cycle. And that's, that, that works a little bit differently than the other honeybee predators uh, in the genus Vespa. And I think something that's kind of dramatic and exciting biologically, but would be totally horrible if you were a beekeeper. So. Yeah. Yeah. So when Jamie and I were kind of thinking about inviting you on to speak about this, we were talking about, you know, what, what should we really ask Chris? You know, that would be helpful to our audience. And we could talk a little bit about the biology, but I think what we really want to talk about is the background of, I guess, your story, right? So your story of the Asian giant hornet in Washington state. When did you guys find out about it at first? And, you know, what, what did that look like for you guys? So it's, it's kind of almost serendipitous. We had been thinking about how we would survey for exotic hymenoptera for a little while. Um, we have a, a new managing entomologist, Sven Spiesiger, who is, comes from Pennsylvania, where he's really involved in the spotted lanternfly uh, project there, which is another really dramatic invasive species. Uh, and, and so he'd been thinking about how would we survey for hornets. We'd sort of come up with some, some plans. And then in, in May last year, May 2019, a, a related species was actually found at a port in North Vancouver. That's a municipality in Vancouver area in Canada. It, was, uh, it turned out to be Vespa soror. Um, it seemed to be a one-off, the kind of thing that maybe landed on a ship and, and fluttered into somebody's, somebody's yard or something like that and, and kind of got the, our wheels spinning. And then in August, um, 
they started getting beekeeper reports of this giant hornet, Asian giant hornet, Vespa mandarinia on, on Vancouver Island, the city of Nanaimo. A little bit after that, they found a nest actually in September and eradicated it. And by then we were really paying attention. We had proposed a, a survey program to the federal government. And in December, I was actually at a meeting in, uh, in Coeur d'Alene. So I remember, it's one of those things I remember exactly where I was. Yeah. I got this email from our Washington Invasive Species Council that said, hey, somebody found this in Blaine. Does anybody know what it was? And within minutes, my boss and I were already on the phone with each other, um, each positive that was Vespa mandarinia. They're pretty distinctive. Um, so he, he went up and chased it down, was able to get the actual specimen, you know, confirm it uh, with it in hand. And then just a little bit later, we heard from uh, Dr. Steve Shepard at Washington State University, runs an apiary research program there. Uh, he had been contact, contacted by a beekeeper about a kilometer away from that December find who had would observe the uh, the hawking behavior at his apiary in, in maybe August and October, and it actually collected a specimen there too. So we ended up with two specimens uh, that were 60-ish miles from the nest in Nanaimo. And that, well, I mean, there's there's no way to respond to that, but with a little bit of concern and 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 dread, even from my perspective. Yeah. So I want to I want to get my date straight. So yeah. you guys had a, a sample in December that you confirmed, and that was the first confirmation in the US, but then notifying people about that, a beekeeper came forward and said that they had seen something similar and happened to have a sample from earlier, perhaps earlier fall, that you later confirmed also was the Asian giant hornet. Is that correct? Almost. Uh, the the okay. slight difference is that beekeeper had already reached out to Pullman, and they okay. were in the process of getting that specimen transferred gotcha. and confirmed. And then when we started reaching out to people, uh, basically, WSC told us. Oh heck, mm -hmm. we've that, so. so was that first specimen that you guys found? Was that um, near a honeybee hive, or where where was it found, and who had reported it? Not really. Um, I mean, it was within a kilometer of a large apiary, but there wasn't uh, a honeybee hive really nearby. I mean, closer. Um, it was actually somebody that walked out onto their porch, looked down, and saw kind of an, an enormous wasp they had never seen before. Um, and I guess while they were standing there looking around, they also saw one buzzing around what they think was the same thing, buzzing around a honeybee feeder. So mm. nope, not, not really connected to honeybees for that particular individual. Well, Chris, this is funny because it emphasizes how important the public is in helping us identify these things. I know that this is going to sound weird on this on this podcast. It's kind of a confession time, but you know, I get lots of strange pictures emailed to me, and I'm not the department's taxonomist. I'm the honeybee specialist, but you know, beekeepers who can't recognize a critter will email it to me, and I kind of always groan and roll my eyes when I get these three thousand images. But you know, we we need these things to happen because people like you are able to identify these new threats. And I think that's an example of how a citizen made it possible for us to recognize and in your case, respond to a threat. So my question is, actually, I have a couple questions. You know, number one, have you found any in 2020, right? And number two, have any beekeepers in your area reported um, all out colony assaults? from these hornets? In other words, are there beekeepers losing colonies? So number one, have you found any samples in 2020? Number two, are beekeepers reporting attacks on their colonies from this hornet? So 2020, we have not found a single sample. Um, right now, our trapping program, because we'd only be in the part of the, of the wasp life cycle where queens would be out roaming around by themselves, getting ready to sure. establish nests, you know, we wouldn't necessarily expect to find them. It should be low density. And I'm, I'm just running some experimental traps. So our trapping program is small right now, but it hasn't re 
recovered anything and we haven't had any um any positive hits from the public in terms of beekeeper reports we we don't have anything that we can confirm any dead outs that are confirmed to be associated with an asian giant hornet we we've had some reports of dead bees but often these were people who, who saw them last year and so you know they'd already kind of cleaned but the the they'd already cleaned up the bodies maybe put them on their bottom board or something like that and so it's really hard to know if, if the even matches the kind of attack we would expect from this hornet we do have a couple of seasoned beekeepers um that had called us up and said hey i just want you to know last october or last year sometime i had a, a couple of healthy hives that i watched get attacked by a large insect that I don't recall ever seeing before, uh, and it completely destroyed the hive. That We've had a couple of those that are near the confirmed specimens. We're not really treating those as confirmed sightings or confirmed attacks, but we are, um, we are taking them seriously because it sounds like it could be that. But there are also other things up here. You know, there are yellow jacket attacks, and, and we do have rodent and shrew predation that we have to you know, try to distinguish from potential Asian giant hornet attacks. So nothing confirmed yet, but there are some things that are pretty worrisome. But, and the, the ones we're most concerned with are those that are within 30 or 40, maybe even 50 miles of the outside of, of these confirmed specimens. When we get reports from Eastern Washington or, or um, like the Portland, Oregon area, it's a lot easier to think that might be the result of some of the other things that, that impact beekeepers. Yeah. So Chris, how do you guys actually do some of the trapping and monitoring and, and how are you guys continuing to monitor for the hornet? I know you said that right now, you know, it's just kind of the queens that are going around. Um, but do you guys, are you familiar with radio tags and do you guys plan to use radio tags on, a, um, on the adult specs to track to see if there is a nest? We, we have a bunch of different approaches. So our trapping, which is really about, about monitoring to try and detect workers leading to that next step you alluded to, is based on what we've learned from, from Japanese and Korean beekeepers uh, who have been dealing with the species for you know, thousands of years. Um, maybe not quite that long in terms of mm -hmm. beekeeping, but for a long time. And those are pretty simple. Um, we adopted it. They're just plastic bottles like a, a grocery store bottle of tea or orange juice or something like that, that have a couple of holes cut into them. They're filled with an attractive bait of some kind. Uh, there's a bunch of different recipes. They're all made with things that are readily available at the grocery store. I call them cocktail traps. Um, so we're using that because there isn't really a, a artificial lure that we've been able to find that is specific to, to Vespa, let alone Vespa mandarinia. So, we're using those. We're kind of placing them widely. Oh, we also adapted that strategy because it's easy for the public to, to volunteer and place a trap mm -hmm. as well. And with the public recruitment, we can really maximize our coverage. Um, we're blanketing the area within a, that is near those two specimens. So within about an eight kilometer radius, we have 330 trap sites. Um, that's based on kind of the foraging distance we estimate they that the wasps might uh, might enjoy. Um, and then if we catch a wasp in one of those traps, we'll do a couple of things. One is we'll increase our trap density and see if we can come up with like a sort of a worker density gradient and follow that back to the nest. But we are also including where we're talking with researchers right now about is it feasible to tie radio tags onto them, for instance, and try and release one and follow it back to the nest or, or maybe an RFID tag or something like that. They've used this in Europe successfully for the, for the, uh, the, the species there. But that wasp, Vespa velatina, nests in trees and ours nests in the ground. 
And so there's a real concern that we'll affix all these expensive radio tags to them and they'll just go to ground and we'll never find them again. So in addition to maybe using that kind of technology, we have, we've got a bunch of infrared cameras, like heat sensitive cameras that we'll also use to search for nests. The, uh, the nests, once they have a nest going, will be about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And so they should really stand out against our relatively cool soils. So. Yeah. So um, I have a couple of other questions. So what's, yeah. is there like a size minimum as far as the container goes with your trapping? And if you don't mind me asking, I'm wondering what you're using as far as your lure recipe. Yeah. So um, the trap has to be kind of deep enough that, um, that once an insect gets into it, once one of these big hornet gets into it, it would be hard for them to find their way out. Now, we know it's hard for bugs to find their way out of the tiny little holes that, that a trap might have anyway, but that's one concern. Um, and then the other one is to make sure that the hole that you cut in it is, is large enough for the hornet to actually enter. Uh, so those are uh, two. That would make sense. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one reason we're not using commercial hornet traps here. We would have to modify them anyway because the holes aren't quite big enough. And since they're expensive and we'd have to spend all this time retrofitting them, we're just going with these plastic bottles. And that stuff is all, if you're interested or if your your listeners are interested on our website at agr.wa.gov slash hornets, there is a link there to our public trapping program. Uh, And the bait, so the bait we'll be using primarily for the public trapping and our own program is a mix of orange juice and a rice wine that doesn't have any additives in it, you know, just like rice and salt. Um, the wine supposedly helps deter other pollinators. It would be, you know, kind of bad optics and not really our goal to, to put traps out that just catch all the honeybees that we're concerned about anyway. So that helps deter honeybees. And then the orange juice is supposed to be attractive. We're also running some experiments where I'm, I've blended grape juice and kefir that mimics a popular drink in, in Japan that's supposed to be really attractive to the species. And then three lures based on uh, attracting yellow jackets and polistes. Um, we're just trying those out now to see if we can come up with something that's a little bit easier to manufacture. And frankly, the orange and rice wine traps are already really gross after a week. And it's <laughs> just, it's just May. I don't know what the, in August, they're just going to be disgusting. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. If we could find something less nasty. That'd be great. So. Sure. Well, Chris, I want to expand on some of the things that you've talked about, because given that you work for the Washington State Department of Agriculture, you know, this is kind of in your wheelhouse. It's, it's, it's your agency's responsibility to monitor for this. You guys are doing it. I, I enjoyed listening to your trap design and trap uh, mm-hmm. bait discussion. But, you know, given that there's other states in the U.S., what, what strategies can these other states do to assist you or prepare potentially for an introduction? You know, I know, for example, in Florida, our Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services, they're monitoring, have been for years for these hornets. But I'm curious, what recommendations can you make to your colleagues around the country who are facing, you know, similar questions from their constituents who are asking about the potential spread and threat of the Asian giant hornet? I think it's important to think about the kind of things we can do in other states is like a hierarchy of, of needs or maybe even concerns. So the first thing for everybody to remember is the only place in North America that there's evidence there could be an established population um, is our tiny little pocket of the Pacific Northwest, it's just upper Northwest Washington and adjacent British Columbia. So if you're anywhere else right now, the risk that wasps are there, that, that Asian giant hornets are there is is as low as it always is. Um, I think it's good now that we've dealt with this potential introduction here for other departments of agriculture and, uh, and our border kind of protection folks, Customs and Border Protection and USDA APHIS to have this on their radar and be ready to take seriously and vet any 
any submitted pictures or specimens or anything like that and think about what pathways might actually be leading to this animal getting to North America. But, but mostly, I think people should do what they already do, which is maintaining robust programs for invasive species in their own states. Uh, and the rest of us, all of our citizenry and members of the public can sort of take a breath and relax and wait to see what our summer turns up. I think that's some great advice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Incidentally, Chris, I complimented you better. Amy said that was great advice. And I said that was uh, advice. Gosh. Well, whatever. I thought at first. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. (laughs) I'm maybe more comfortable with great than wise. Okay. Well, I don't know. Wise and ophthalmologists don't work out. (laughs) (laughs) We we accept, we accept that though. We're all. Yeah. There we go. Um, So, There were some apiary inspectors. I think they had a meeting today and they knew that we were going to be interviewing you. And so they were wondering if there was any interest in collaborative projects or if there was any opportunity for collaborative projects for monitoring with other states, Department of um, Agriculture, and, you know, whether or not there are potential funding or project opportunities. Do you have a vision for that at all? Well, so in terms of the collaboration part right now, I think I'm going to go back to what I just said this great wise advice thank you so much which is um for all of us in other states to just can you continue having our sort of regular level of invasive species vigilance and so the need to have a formal collaboration or formal survey in other states right now for this species is probably premature and and frankly would just take resources that that are going to be in in like Mm -hmm. like high demand given how how crummy the economy is and divert them from projects that are going to be a lot more important in the in the sure. short term. In terms of research and funding opportunities, we are we are engaged in some collaborative projects with the United States Department of Agriculture and um, and local university to better explore developing pheromone lures or or some kind of semi semi semiochemical lure that um, that would be more specific for this species. So we're already pursuing that. Uh, we're also looking at some trap design um, things, trap design uh, options. Uh, there's some species habitat modeling that we're working on so we can understand if if this does become an established population that we cannot eradicate, uh, what's the risk of it spreading to other parts of the country? Where should people care and where should people just totally like <laughs> be like, I'm glad I'm not you. Uh, <laughs> so that's critical. We actually have a paper that, that I'm helping review right now that we're, we're hoping will be out for peer review really soon. Um, that's promising. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, and then it, the, the next step in this would be thinking about beehive technology and management options, but I think we're pretty far down the road there. So, um, so if you're a beekeeper or a beekeeper society, it's good to think about those things, but I wouldn't act on any of that just yet. Let's mm-hmm. see what we find out this summer. All right. So I have a question and this is totally a joke because I don't really know you that well. I'm wondering if a can of raid will kill them. A can of raid will kill them, um, <laughs> but it would kill an individual one, right? If you found yourself near a hornet's nest, uh, especially one that was, uh, you know, mid or late in its colony cycle, I think your can of raid would be insufficient to deal with a bunch of hornets coming out at you. And you that should is fair. Away. Fair, wise, great advice. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's exceptional advice, which which makes it even better than fair. Uh, advice, Amy. All right. So let me 
let me bring us back down. I really hate to ask this question. I'm, I'm, I tried to steer away from it, but I just want a very brief synopsis, Chris, of the, the biology of this hornet. You, you've kind of sprinkled biology through a lot of your answers, and I just wondered if you could give us a quick summary of what this hornet does through the standard year. What are its prey items? What are its nesting? What is its nesting behavior, et cetera, to kind of get our beekeepers and listeners thinking about how this how this thing functions in the first place. And you don't have sure. to go into too much detail because I know we'll chase rabbits. I, at least I will because the, the biology is what's so amazing to me. But if you could just provide us a brief overview, that would be great. All right. Um, I'll just pick up the life cycle where we are right now in the year, which is the hibernating queens have emerged um, from, from their overwintering sites. They're buzzing around. And I'm going to say this like they're here. This is if they were in their native habitat, right? So just just assume that I'm not talking about here because I don't want everybody to get freaked out when they listen to this later. Anyway, so they'll be buzzing around looking for carbohydrate and sap resources to sort of refuel and get ready for establishing a colony. They will do that by finding a hole, um, a cavity that's uh, more often than not near rotting tree roots, but it could also be an abandoned animal burrow or mammal burrow. Um, she'll get into this uh, burrow, kind of excavate a little bit, in, initiate her colony with 40 or 60 cells, lay some workers. And once those workers are able to get out and start doing work, she stays in the nest. Um, from this point on, workers do all the foraging, much like with other social hymenoptera. They feed on basically any large insect they can ca catch. In, in fact, the Japanese research suggests that, that beetles comprise 60% of their diet. And so even if they're honeybee attack specialists, they are certainly feeding on lots of other insects. They'll continue this feeding, um, you know, from say June or July through August. And I think August is about when they start showing up at apiaries. Um, and that is just, uh, that would be just what we call hawking behavior, right? Individual hunting events by, by foraging workers. Um, as the colony really ramps up its size, gets close to producing those reproductives at the end of the colony cycle, this is when we see the massive attacks on beehives. Researchers aren't really sure if that's because they want this rich and easily obtained protein source of, of, of bee larvae and pupae, or because other insects that might be good foragers are sort of disappearing from the landscape late in the season. Um, that happens, again, like the end of summer, beginning of fall. This is when the hive will produce all of the virgin queens and males. Uh, again, like other social hymenoptera, we're only talking about females doing all of the work up to this point. Actually, all of the work always. Uh, then the males and the queens will emerge. They will mate actually right at the uh, nest, it seems. Um, the research I've read suggests that mating success is kind of low in this species, maybe as low as 30%. Um, so, so of this burgeoning new class of queens, only a small subset of them are able to found a new nest in the winter. And of course they will during the uh, subsequent spring. And they do that after overwintering in maybe pockets in the soil it seems to be the primary, primary overwintering space, but they could also be in, in other cavities that, that are suitable, like, uh, you know, like wood piles or something like that. But mostly it seems like in pockets of the soil. So there, that's the, uh, that's the life cycle. Pretty different or pretty similar to other Vespa. As I say, if, if, if you had not told me that we were talking about the Asian giant hornet, I would say that we were talking about just about any other social Vespa that uh, we could think of here in the U.S. So it's That's interesting exactly that it's right. pretty similar. The two, I guess, two key differences are that there's no evidence that this species ever relocates a nest, which some Vespids will do. Uh, partway through their colony cycle, they'll they'll abandon a nest and start a new one elsewhere. I, I can't remember if that's due to space limitations or or what. Uh, and then they nest in the ground, which is different than most other Vespa uh, species. 
Yeah, actually, that's the thing that I noticed first when people started talking about it. That's the thing that seemed unusual to me. So it's interesting that you bring that point up as well. Well, Chris, I want to thank you, you know, profusely for joining us. I know that you are in high demand because I see your name in absolutely every Asian Giant Hornet article that's coming out or, or, or every interview. So I really, truly appreciate you giving us your time today. Let me see if I can summarize kind of some of the main points of what you said. You know, the Hornets, the Asian Giant Hornet, they're, they're present in a limited area of the Pacific Northwest. There are uh, a lot of monitoring efforts, both where you are being run by you and your department, as well as in other states already looking for this thing. But right now, they've only been found where, where you are in the Pacific Northwest and in Washington State. This is not the same hornet that's impacting honeybee colonies in Europe. They're related, but it's not the same one. So ultimately, we can relax a little bit. We're going to make it through this. Is that a fair summary of the, the points that you wanted to make? Sounds pretty good. Maybe one caveat is we're not even sure they're established. Yeah. Oh, well, great. I, I like that idea. Good. So that's what I was thinking that when you were talking about the, the low uh, mating rates and the low nest founding rates, I was thinking, well, if only one or two were introduced into the Pacific Nor Northwest, there's still a low probability that it even survived winter and it's going to establish in the first place. So I really appreciate you bringing that point back up. Uh, can I circle back to something you said, actually? Absolutely. Be happy to. So, so you, you brought up how, how important citizen reports of, of new species can be. You know, that's certainly how we discovered this. I just wanted to maybe let your listeners know, we, we actually did an analysis a couple of years ago. It's, I think it was an American entomologist, if you want to go read it, of all of the exotic species in Washington that have been detected in about 20 years um, that we could call pests. You know, so that would cost somebody time, money, or heartache in some way not all exotic species, so just the ones that are pestiferous, and fully a third of them uh, were, were from citizen reports the first time, either to the Master Gardener programs or to directly to us, where people just said, I don't know what this one is, what do you, what do you know? And that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really critical relationship between members of the public and agencies like ours um, in maintaining that, that flow of information of those questions. And I always welcome them because chances are I'm going to learn something new. So, so keep it up, y'all. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And that I, is and a great point. Dang it, Jamie. <laughs> I beat you again. Oh, gosh. So listeners, you have been uh, privileged to listen to Chris Looney, who's an entomologist from the Washington State Department of Agriculture. He's at the center of the Asian giant hornet issue that we, we are having at the moment in the United States. He provided wonderful information. Chris, we're going to make sure and link your website, your resources in the show notes for this podcast. I can't thank you enough for joining us today on Two Bees in a Podcast. It was a real pleasure. Hey, I wish you continued luck and success. I'm glad you're the one that's handling this because you seem to be <laughs> handling it with poise and grace and also, you know, scientifically. I really appreciate the thought that you put into the answers. You probably had to say them a few times, but, but certainly they're well thought out and I think your strategy for moving forward is good. So thank you again, Chris. Wish us luck. All right. Good luck. Take care. Thanks. For additional resources, visit the podcast page on our website, ufhoneybee.com. All right. I think that was a great interview that we just had with Chris. What do you think, Jamie? That was yeah, really, really awesome. Yeah, did a good job. I think, well, obviously, the guy has to spend a lot of time answering questions about the Asian <laughs> giant hornet, which is good. I'm, yeah. I'm grateful that he's there doing it. He did a really good job. 
So I guess there were a couple of things that we did want to mention that we, you know, didn't didn't bring up to him because we felt like we could just kind of discuss some of these things, just as far as some of the concerns, you know, that people may have with the Asian giant hornet. Um, but one of those things was that we live with so many stinging insects around us. Do you want to start with that, Jamie, and let, yeah. let me know? Absolutely. So, Amy, what I did is just what you said. I made a few notes to myself about things that I wanted to make sure and drive home to our listeners because people are panicking about this. I think last week it was one of the most tweeted things. And as you mentioned in your interview with Chris, there's so many memes that have popped up about it. And I know the moment you posted information on our social media accounts at UF Honeybee Lab through Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, People started claiming, well, it's been here in Florida. I've seen it the last 20 years. And I, <laughs> North Carolina, we've had it too. Jamie, well, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when he had, you know, like the golden ticket. Like everyone wants oh, to find yeah. the golden <laughs> ticket. That's what well, it feels like right well, now. This is a ticket you don't want though. So <laughs> uh, Yeah, agreed, agreed. So let me, let me kind of address that. While it is theoretically possible that this hornet occurs outside the Pacific Northwest, there is no evidence, zero evidence at the moment that it does. And so I would caution people who, who believe that they have it, I would caution them to kind of take a second look and consideration of this. And, and this is my argument. Number one, there's lots of things that people can mistake for Asian giant hornets. I'm not trying to pull out my entomologist card here, but I struggle to uh, you know, tell the difference between a lot of insects. So it's, it's possible that you know, what I call kind of armchair entomologists, they're going to struggle too. And I'll give you some examples. Yellow jackets um, are social wasps that nest in the ground and that hunt honeybees mm-hmm. at certain times of the year. Bald-faced hornets, which are a, a, a black hornet with a white patch. They're not actually hornets at all. They're a type of yellow jacket, but we won't go there for purposes of this podcast. Cicada killers are these gigantic wasps that hunt cicadas, and they're colored very similarly to Asian giant hornets. And cicadas only, right? That's right. They feed only on cicadas. And one of the things that's, that's most interesting to me is that Europe has a native hornet that is red and yellow and orange-ish in appearance, and mm-hmm. it's been in the U.S. since the 1800s. And it is very similar at least um, in, in quick glance to the, to the look of the Asian giant hornet. In fact, when I first heard of that second hornet species, the one that, that is in Europe is, is causing problem for beekeepers, I looked at it and looked at the European hornet and it was just a struggle for me to tell mm-hmm. the difference. So my point is, is number one, lots of things can be mistaken for Asian giant hornets. So if you think you see it, don't panic you know, let's rule out the obvious things first before moving forward. Sure. The second thing that I want to bring up to our listeners is we just don't really understand at the moment to the threat to bee colony. So the Asian giant hornet in Asia um, does hunt honeybees. It'll show up at bee colonies, but those bee colonies have a response where they will ball this hornet. They'll, they'll cluster around it and heat it up which will result in this hornet's death while it's, while it's attacking hives. We, we know our bees don't have that same behavior. We've seen evidence of that in Asia. But I will, I will tell you, just because it's capable of causing significant problems in certain areas doesn't mean it will across the U.S. So we really don't understand the threat. 
let's say I snap my fingers and tomorrow it was absolutely everywhere around the world. Would it pose the same threat to bees as Varroa and the viruses do? I, I just don't think it will. Will it be mm -hmm. something like small hive beetles? I, I just don't think it will. I think it'll be something more akin to what yellow jackets or, or standard hornets do in fall when their prey items are otherwise disappearing. That's, of course, speculation. I could be wrong. But I, I would argue initially, we don't need to panic. We just need to keep monitoring and we need to read up on it and just be ready should it show up. So what does that readiness mean? Well, in Asia, they already have traps and screens, et cetera, to limit the impact of this hornet around their colony. So there's been a lot of work done. I know in Europe, when, when they've got this other species of Asian hornet that's attacking bee colonies, they've also done a lot of work with baits and locating nests and eradicating nests and trapping hornets and excluding hornets, et cetera. So it, it's important to know that we, we will get through this. So do you think that it's true that people in Asia, the beekeepers there, have tennis rackets just waiting for these hornets to come by so they can whack them down? It's funny you ask me that. I do believe it's true. I will tell you that, that, that a lot of people around the world try to address hornets and, and insect pests of honeybees by swatting them out of the air, oddly <laughs> enough. I don't think that that will take, take hold here in the U.S., but never say never. I don't think I'd be brave enough for that. <laughs> well, that might be your job if they ever show up in Florida. So what kind of traps and screens do you, would you what, <laughs> what kind of traps and screens would you suggest if someone were to be afraid of, I mean, even just general wasps? Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there, there are, well, when we talk about wasps in general, one of the things that I tell people to do is that I would, I recommend reducing entrances, right? Because if, if you've got a yellow jacket, for example, attacking a honeybee colony, they're usually trying to go through the entrance of the hive. So if you reduce that entrance and give the honeybees less space to defend, you'll really help yourself out. You keep your colony strong. Uh, I know that um, leaky syrup jars, leaky feeder jars attract yellow jackets mm -hmm. and, and wasps in the first place. They're often there to get that carbohydrate resource and it calls attention to your hives. But even in Florida, we, we've been, our colonies have been attacked by yellow jackets so hard sometimes that we just have to move apiaries to get away from the nest sure. because if we can't find the nest, the, the, the best thing we can do is try to get away from where we think it may be. Mm -hmm. But I think similar responses are going to happen should that hornet end up spreading outside the Pacific Northwest, which leads me to my next point. We have no idea how long its spread is going to take first of all we don't know that or it's if it's going to spread yeah, yeah we don't know that it's established you heard chris say that you know they found some individuals in in fall winter of 2019 but they've not seen it since mm -hmm. maybe it's maybe it's not established if it if it does establish and does you know overwinter continuously in the pacific northwest we really have no benchmark for how long it will take to spread throughout the U.S., throughout Canada or Mexico or Central America. It's just a guessing game, and people who tell you otherwise are just speculating heavily. Mm -hmm. now, and another point that I want to make is that we, we are bee scientists and entomologists. We're not, you know, human scientists, and so we, we don't really know the threat that it poses to humans. I know that the press has been kicking around this murder hornet moniker, but I, I, I would argue that it probably poses a similar threat that's posed by all the other stinging insects, right? You don't mm -hmm. want to bump against a bald-faced hornet nest or a yellow jacket nest. You want to stay away from those things. And, and Asian giant hornets, same. And my guess is, is a lot of the concern surrounding them is just the size of this thing. The, the, the size means it, it's a big, powerful sting, lots of venom and can, and can hurt. But 
but we stay, we always recommend staying away from stinging insects anyway, mm-hmm. right? So I think our recommendations would be similar. So Jamie, I've had a lot of people email me saying that they have found it or they call me saying that they have found this Asian giant hornet. Can you tell me what someone is supposed to do if they think they have found it? Yeah, first of all, I'll say I love you, but you're probably wrong. <laughs> but one of the things that Chris ended up pointing out that I think is true is that, you know, he said in Washington State, 30% of new invasive species were found by the general public. So it, we need the general public to report things. But first of all, let's start at the beginning. Number one, as I've shared, lots of things can be mistaken. Number two, this is a social stinging insect. So if you suspect you find a nest, you should not go up to it to collect a sample because that could elicit a defensive response that could be bad news for you. Um, If you see it on a flower on your front porch or around a beehive, you might consider taking a picture if if you're able to do so. If you find one individual, again, around a beehive, a front porch, a flower, you know, and you end up killing it, then that sample could be photographed or preserved in the freezer uh, for, for sending to the appropriate individual, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But again, I want to stress, we do not recommend you walking up to these things to mm-hmm. collect them because they are stinging insects. But if you have an image or you suspect you've seen one, you can send that image or the sample or your questions to your respective Department of Agriculture. Here in Florida, that would be the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. If you just Google, you know, uh, invasive species or insect specimen or insect identification and your state's Department of Agriculture, you are likely going to find who to ask that question, who needs to receive that sample or who needs to receive that picture. So think my state department of ag might be interested in this information that I have about this insect I can't recognize. Mm-hmm. And I mean, most insects, isn't it just 1% of the insects that we have? Those are the ones that really bother us. Those are the pests that we are concerned about. And the rest of them are either beneficial or they just coexist, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the vast majority of insects that we have are, uh, are inconsequential, at least directly to humans. Obviously, they sure. all play an important role out there, but really it's just the problem insects that people think most about. And that's why they think all insects are that way. But that's, that's just simply not the truth. Yeah. We just don't want people going around smacking all the hornets and other insects out there. Yeah. Cause you might hit to. one of my honeybees and I won't be happy about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the last point I want to make, Amy, kind of as we conclude this very special podcast about the Asian giant hornet is that there's lots of resources that have been produced. Our own Cameron Jack, Dr. Cameron Jack from the University of Florida Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory has worked with some students in his courses to develop um, very good information documents about the Asian giant hornet as well as the Asian hornet. We've got feature creature documents about both of those. The United States Department of Agriculture has put together a huge guidance document on the Asian giant hornet. Washington State, where Chris Looney works, has put together websites about a website about the Asian giant hornet. And all of that information will be linked in our show notes so that you can have it at your fingertips if you have questions about this. Awesome. Well, there you have it. Everyone now is an expert on the Asian giant hornet. Fantastic. I'm glad we were able to do this episode, guys. If you have questions for us about this hornet, don't hesitate to post those questions on our social media accounts at UF Honeybee Lab. Don't hesitate to contact your state Department of Agriculture if you think you have um, seen an individual. And we hope you use our resources and read into this thing so that hopefully it will calm your fears, but also make you prepared and know what to look for should this thing ever show up where you live. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to the following. To our editors, Shelby Howell and Bailey Carroll, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, Two Bees in a Podcast would not be possible. So thank you. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. <laughs>